0: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here, of course, on Talk of Radio. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, standing at the gates of a new set of opportunity. The shops are open, the football is back on tonight. There's talk of summer holidays via air bridges, and there's even a breakthrough drug that's been discovered that could save thousands of lives from coronavirus. All in all, it's not a bad start to a Wednesday, is it? Coming up today, we've got a whole host of great guests for you. First up, Annunziata Rees-Mogg, former Brexit Party MEP, tells us what she makes of the way Boris Johnson and the cabinet are doing, and where. The- the trade talks go with the European Union. Then it's Neil Oliver, the historian and presenter of TV show Coast. He joins us with his take on why we've become so politically tribal and if there's any precedent for it in our past. Then Scotland's former First Minister Lord Jack McConnell will tell us why it's so important for children to get back into the classroom. He's a former teacher so he should know what he's talking about. As ever, of course we need to hear from you as well. Are you back at work? Do you want to go back but somehow you can't? Are you out shopping? Let us know what you're seeing, what you're hearing and what you are being told of course because i'm getting various different reports from different parts of the country as to how busy the shopping areas are some people were in london yesterday telling me in the center of town it was really really quiet some shops are open around oxford street around regent street around carnaby street but lots of them are still not and lots of tube stations are apparently still closed So we need to know what is going on out there. With your help, you are the eyes and ears, of course, of the Independent Republic, 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll find out what the decision to do away with the Department for International Development means. Will we be saving any taxpayers' money? You'd like to think so. We'll bring you Prime Minister's questions, of course, at midday in the company of our political correspondent, Charlotte Ivers. And our homeschooling project today is a bit of literacy. We're learning all about rhyming couplets. So, you might want to get your rhyming couplets at the ready. 0344 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, lots to do today, lots going on. We are sort of, with each ever-advancing uh, day, learning more and more about the coronavirus. The front pages this morning are very full of the joys of spring about this new 50 pence a day pill, which appears to be some kind of uh, relative of a steroid called dexamethasone, uh, which is easy for me to say, but apparently not so easy for the Prime Minister Boris Johnson to say yesterday, because he rather stumbled over it. But it is a complicated and many-syllabled word, so I forgive him for that. Uh, but let's talk now to Anunziata Rees-Mogg, former Brexit. Party MEP, of course, uh, with a very, very interesting take on what is going on in Europe, what is going on with the European Union and where we go, really, uh, with these Brexit negotiations. Lindsay very good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Very well, indeed. Thank you so much for joining us. Last time I saw you, you were uh, about to give birth. Um, That was quite a while ago, I suppose, because it must have been because we were sitting in a restaurant together, uh, actually not social distancing very far away from one another.
3: No, we were allowed out and about. <laughs> Those were the days, and I now have a four-month-old.
0: Wow, it was that long ago. Well, I hope everything is, uh, is going well, and um, you're probably welcoming the fact that you're not in the, in the sort of the throes of the, the middle of political discourse at the moment, because it can be rather uh, nasty and brutish and short at the moment between Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson. But, but what's been your assessment of the way the government's handled all of this since it started I- in March?
3: I think things have improved hugely, that the new Boris Johnson government has changed tack completely and it stood up for our country. And that has had a clear impact on the reaction of the European negotiators and leaders that von der Leyen um, appears to have accepted that we will leave on the 31st of December that there will not be any further extensions. Up until now, I think, um, thanks to Theresa May and all of the underhand manoeuvrings of the Remain bulk of Parliament um, before December, they thought they could just string it out forever and ever and trap us in the ECJ. And that's been made very clear by Gove and by Boris Johnson. That we will not be ruled by the ECJ after we've left will be an independent country, which is what everyone voted for in the first place.
0: Yes, indeed. Apart from, of course, Ed Davey, who, believe it or not, was on Dan Wooten's show uh, here on Talk Radio yesterday and actually said, "Surely there is a reason to re-examine things." Of course, he wants to delay yet again the Brexit negotiations. I mean, when will these people ever get the message that it's done?
3: Well, I think there is a really big problem, and it goes far deeper now than Brexit because it's being conflated with every other possible issue. Mm. The the Remainers accusing all Brexiteers, all supporters of us leaving the European Union and its institutions, accusing uh, all of them, uh, 52% of the electorate of being racists, of being thick working class people who should be ignored has really inflamed other tensions. Mm. And that is a massive problem we've got to overcome. And I think we can only do that by making a success of Brexit. But that means really standing up for the democratic majority.
0: Absolutely right. And in many ways, the silent majority, because you're quite right. This whole kind of Remainer argument that was was that, uh, you know, Brexit was a mistake. uh, It was the work of idiotic people who led uh, even more idiotic people who were possibly racist and definitely not clever enough to understand what was going on into a sort of cul-de-sac of uh, of horror uh, none of that is true none of it is stand-upable all of the things the dire warnings that we were told about that well, this was going to happen that was going to happen none of that happened um boris johnson managed to get everything done the way he said he would get it done so i don't understand quite what the mechanism is in these people's brains that they think they can still change things
3: I mean, you talk about the silent majority and i think that is so true and it is really worrying that even i and um i i have quite a thick skin Mm. and have had to by being in politics for as long as I have been in and around it. I'm not saying as much as I would like to on Twitter, on any other social media because of the attacks. And they're coming from people with blue ticks who should have a responsibility and a reputation for upholding um, peace and dignity on it. And instead, they're saying things like kill and eat Reese Mox. Yeah, it's 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 deeply unpleasant. Mm. And even when it's not about Brexit, if you're just calling for calm um, in the recent demonstrations and uh, to some extent riots that we had, where I think both sides uh, had small elements who very much overreacted, Mm. attacked the police, attacked statues, attacked each other. And that's not a situation we want to get in, but inflaming those tensions by accusing anyone even just calling for things to calm down, for us to talk. There are clearly problems. Mm. There are things we need to sort out. There are a large number of ethnic minority people who feel they are discriminated against. We've got to get to the heart of why, Mm. of what needs to be done, what we can change, how we can make things better not just to throw mud at each other.
0: No, because the whole kind of idea of consensus seems to have been turned on its head, because consensus now doesn't mean um, a sort of a meeting in the middle of people who have differing views. Consensus now means uh, only one thing, and if you don't agree with us, uh, we will come after you.
3: Absolutely, and and I think it's spread so much further than the uh, few people with high profiles on one side or the other, that a, a friend of mine on Facebook this morning put up if you believe x y and z um, such as you like boris johnson or um you think it's okay to eat meat as examples then please defriend me because i don't want to engage in those debates right. that's obviously her right but it's also very sad for yeah. the future because if you can't discuss things then you can't overcome differences
0: No, you really can't. And surely the point of of democracy uh, is that there is a choice and you can choose, but you may lose. And that's the way life is sometimes. And if you want to be uh, a supporter of a party that wants to remain in Europe, you're very welcome to be one of those. However, once the majority of people have voted to leave Europe, the European Union rather,
3: uh, then that's the end of that, surely? I mean, I think one of the great worries is that it demonstrates that a large proportion um, of uh, public figures on one side don't actually believe in the democratic process and that the loss of numerous elections, um, whether it be on Brexit or, um, the conservative party versus the left wing parties, they don't believe they should have lost. They believe that all of us who voted the other way are wrong mm. for whatever reason, whether it's because we're racist or because we're stupid or because we just don't count because we're old and should really have died. Mm. Um, and that uh, not accepting results is causing great difficulties and much greater tensions. And if we don't get on as a country and accept the winners have won and the losers have lost, We're not going to get anywhere.
0: No, quite. And what do you make of the way the Labour Party has kind of uh, metamorphosed, if you like, under Sir Keir Starmer, a man whose uh, Brexit policy basically killed off any hope that Labour might have had in the last election of getting anywhere uh, because it was so kind of two-faced and sitting on the fence, you know, for leaving uh, the EU if you were in a leave seat uh, and for staying in if you were in a Remain seat?
3: It was um, terrible, um, the machinations of what he was proposing whilst um, he was working with Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. But I had great hope when he won, that he came in and he said, there's a national crisis, we're going to work together, Um, I will support the government as a critical friend. That seemed like a very good move forward, Mm. and it hasn't worked out like that in the slightest. No. His MPs are inflaming um, uh, the differences between people not trying to bring them together, and he is doing nothing to stop it. And then he's up at the ballot box uh, shouting at Boris Johnson in just the way it always was if not
0: worse. Yes. Well, that's the problem. Every single Wednesday, I look forward to Prime Minister's questions because, for me, this is where Sir Keir Starmer proves that he's actually not very good. He's not particularly charismatic. He's not particularly clever, even though people describe him as forensic. Uh, I find him to be tedious. I find him to be characterless. I find him to be not particularly good uh, at getting Boris Johnson uh, on the spot. And, in fact, with every passing week, Boris seems to get better at sort of slapping him around.
3: I think... Boris um, is good at learning his brief. Yeah. He's, he's got the measure of Keir Starmer more and more, as you say, as each week goes by. But Keir Starmer is just coming at it from the wrong side. That What we need at the moment is to hold the government to account but support what it's doing right. And we've got to work together as a country. This is a time of huge crisis. It's a time of tragic deaths of uh, economic disaster um, round the corner unless we can work this out and uh, many people are, are suffering what we don't need is great attention.
0: No exactly right and what's it what's it been like for you and your family in Nunziata because I know you live outside of London in the countryside um, what's it what's it been like and is it sort of seemingly lifting now to some extent?
3: I I think um, up here it it is noticeably um, relaxing. People are out and about in the way they weren't Mm. a month or or longer ago. And I think that is a good thing. But obviously my local town is Skegness and it is absolutely silent compared to normal. Mm. And those businesses are in really dire straits that a lot of insurance companies have refused um, any support um, in this crisis and there's a lot beyond the furlough scheme that businesses are losing out on and yeah. taking loans for a season you're never going to get back um, you might not be able to pay back um, The for me personally I've got a small baby um, I was up all night because he had his uh, injections right. yesterday vaccinations um, and I was planning on being reasonably quiet anyway yes But I feel very sorry for the school children who haven't been able to go back, and I think that's really difficult for the um, emotional stability of a lot of children who are stuck at home without necessarily contemporaries or siblings of a similar age and and that socialization aspect, let alone the education. Mm which is really lacking.
0: Yes, I mean, we're going to talk to Jack McConnell about this later on in, in the show, but I worry, um, I've got two teenage boys, and, you know, they won't be now having any sort of education, strategic education, a physical education, if you like, where they're actually sitting in a classroom, until September. And we're now told maybe not even then, which is a very long way off.
3: It, it is. It's a very long time, particularly when you're young time stretches in a much longer way than as you age and it speeds up, depressingly so. But um, I think that people can get back from it. But unless you're a very self-motivated child, Mm. which let's face it, the majority probably are not... It's very difficult to keep that concentration without the impetus of the classroom. Right. Well, it's
0: a bit like you know being a grown-up and not having a job to go to, isn't it? You know, it's all—it's all very well to say just get, get up every morning and be motivated and go and find a job, but after a while, um, you just sleep later. You don't bother doing anything. You find yourself in a kind of spiral of despair.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And we know from study after study how bad it is for the mental health of anyone mm. to not have a purpose in life, and for children, that mainly is school.
0: Yes, I totally agree. Well, Anunziata, great to hear you in good form and good fettle. Hope you get some rest uh, later on today. Thank you so much for joining us. Anunziata Rees-Mogg there, uh, former MEP, of course, uh, and uh, politician, and now not so much involved in frontline politics, but she may well do so again. But as she says, you know, what a nasty, ghastly, horrible kind of uh, world we live in, uh, where you get people abusing someone just because of a name because of the name reese mogg she has to put up with abuse i think that's entirely wrong and i think it's entirely despicable Uh, and i think if that is the kind of politics that we are teaching people in this country then i think something needs to change
2: the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio
0: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've got much to do today and I want your help with all of it, of course. What are you doing? Are you going out shopping? I'm hearing sort of conflicting reports about what it's like, depending on which part of the country you're in, uh, whether people are actually queuing up to buy loads of stuff, whether they've got the money to buy loads of stuff. The one big story we talk about a lot on this show, though, is education. We talked about it yesterday uh, with one of the state school teachers that we talk to from time to time. I think we're all in agreement, generally speaking, uh, that we need to get our children back to school and the sooner we do it, it, the better let's talk now though to lord jack mcconnell uh, who's former first minister of scotland of course a former maths teacher as well former education minister a man who you might say is yet another great expert for us to talk to uh, in this regard jack a very good morning to you welcome
1: Good morning to you, Mr Graham. How Thank, are you? I'm
0: very well indeed. Thank goodness we finally got you on the show. We've got you in glorious technicolour <laughs> as well. Welcome. Um, you've written a piece in the Daily Mail today about your feeling about how we save the NHS uh, by you know good practice and good policy. We must do the same for our children. Tell us why.
1: Well, if we go back to March, uh, the, the governments at all levels, whatever we think of some of the individual decisions, they mobilised like never before in peacetime, mm to make sure that we could save lives in the NHS. And they also mobilised to make sure that we could save jobs by bringing in a job retention scheme that no one could have even imagined just a fortnight before. And I cannot understand why, now three months on, we're in a situation where nobody has made the same effort to make sure that our kids can return to school after the summer holidays. And uh, I am calling for the sort of national action plan that would make that happen in all four nations and making sure that in Scotland in particular, where uh, where I live, that, that the plans are in place to have kids out of the home and in school buildings and other facilities learning properly from the end of the school holidays on the 11th of August.
0: Yes. I mean, it seems to me, and I'm not one of those who likes to go back over what happened when we didn't know certain things and be critical, yep. but it me seems too. to me that it was very hasty when they cancelled all the exams because my I've got a 15-year-old who should have been doing his GCSEs and he's now completely rudderless because he's got nothing to revise for. He's got nothing to do until September and he has to wait now until August the 20th to even find out what grade they're going to deem to give him uh, from his work of of, of the last year.
1: Well, I mean, obviously that has been a really difficult uh, period already for parents and for young people, I think particularly for teenagers Mm. who are desperately worried about their futures. They they not only have a worry about their education, but they're now worrying about jobs in the future and the state of the economy. Uh, And it's obviously been a very stressful time for young children Mm. as well who've missed their friends and the other adults and the lives that matter to them. Uh, What I can't understand is why Plan A for August is part-time education for everybody. And, and in Scotland this week on Sunday, they were talking about part-time education for a year. Now, thankfully, I think we maybe got some movement on that over the last few days. But plan A should be that if it's safe enough, if all the buildings can be found, if the staff can be hired and seconded, if the equipment can be ordered and arrive on time for August, to get these kids into full-time education. And plan B should be part-time learning. If the virus comes back in big numbers, or if there is some technical difficulty locally that makes the, it impossible to do that in a mm. particular school. They've got the plans the wrong way around. The yes. idea that we have a plan A, which is that all the kids will miss out and lose out, uh, and a plan B might come into place at some point over the next few months, mm. and we might have to rush to then try and find the uh, the staff and the buildings and the equipment, uh, is the wrong way around. The planning should have been for full-time education, And it's still not too late to do
0: that. Yes. Well, I feel as though there should be an opportunity as well for some of the children who are currently not in school to go back, even if it's only for two, three or four weeks before the summer. Because, you know, when you think of how far away September is, I know in Scotland they go back a little bit earlier, but it's a very long time to be doing literally nothing um, for an awful lot of them. I'm pleased to see that that some schools now are getting a little bit better at the online uh, learning and they're being a bit more specific about giving tasks out that need to be done. Whereas before they were just saying... Well, do it if you feel like doing it. Um, But you're absolutely right. Other European countries seem to have managed to do it safely. So why can't we do it?
1: Every other European country is ahead of us uh, on this. Uh, Now, I I recognise there are some teachers and there are some schools around the country that have done an incredible job with this. And there are some families that have coped well with it. Some families have even enjoyed it. But the vast majority of families have struggled. The vast majority of kids have not even used all of the online teaching that was available. And the most vulnerable and disadvantaged kids, the the ones that we should care most about, in many cases have had nothing at all uh, because of their home situation, the personal circumstances uh, and and the difficulties involved. And these kids have fallen even further behind than they already were back in March. And that's why we need a sense of urgency Every kid should have been back in school for at least a day before the school summer holidays. It's nonsense that that hasn't happened. Mm. But we can still rectify this for August uh, and in England in in September. We can still have the facilities available. I I spoke to a a private school head teacher in Edinburgh this week, uh, and they have booked uh, uh, the the use of extra facilities. They've ordered extra equipment. They've got uh, secondees and other staff moved around and volunteers coming in in order to make sure that the kids can do the online learning in the school or in the wider school environment, not in the home. Now, this is this could be happening in every school in Scotland mm. if it just was a bit of leadership from the government and a bit of action from the councils. And, you know, I think this week we've seen a, a slight move from the First Minister to say that this idea of part-time learning for 12 months no longer uh, is, the, is the expectation. But we need an action plan right now. We can't wait until August. To start, this, to start this action.
0: Are you able to lobby Gavin Williamson as well in Westminster? Because you do have a voice. You are a, a member yeah. of the House of Lords. Um, my worry about the First Minister of Scotland and Nicola Sturgeon's team is that they seem absolutely obsessed with being kind of one step behind Boris Johnson, not in terms of politics and in terms of policy, but in terms of lifting the lockdown. It seems as though she's put herself in that place and she won't do anything before it's done in England.
1: Well, I, I in fact, I raised in the House of Lords... Uh, back um, two weeks ago now, a question to the education minister in the House of Lords, who's responsible for English education, Mm. not Scottish, Uh, that very point that we needed an action plan in all four nations. uh, And I was writing about it uh, at that time. I think all four nations in the UK need to take a more urgent uh, and emergency approach to, to this education situation. I've not got involved, frankly, either in London or in Edinburgh over the last few months, in picking apart the individual decisions. I think there will be time for that in the future. I don't, uh, I don't underestimate the scale of the challenge that all the different governments of the UK faced uh, in March and April, given what was happening. And I think it was right to prioritize saving lives and saving jobs at that time. But we've had three months to plan for saving education and it's not happened. And we now have less than two months left to, to save it for the start of the new school year. And that's why action needs to start this week to put full-time education in place for August.
0: Right, and in the piece you've written today, you talk about how difficult it was uh, teaching in the 1980s because of yeah. the kind of the problems that you had then. You're actually making me feel nostalgic for a time when the Labour Party had some intelligent people in it.
1: Well, I mean, I I, I was a school teacher in uh, you know in a, in a community that was really struggling back in the 1980s, just outside uh, Alloa in central Scotland, yeah. and. Um, You know, I watched kids every day, yes, come into school because we were pushing them to do that, but I could see in their faces this sense of uh, hopelessness and drift um, that was happening in their lives. And we saw in the generations to come after that, uh, that not only them, but their children and in some cases their grandchildren uh, uh, fell off the tracks and, and, and had real serious social and economic difficulties. We cannot allow, we're facing a huge recession coming down the track here uh, in the UK and around the world. We cannot allow this generation of kids to go down that same road. And that is why I think it's so important that this next phase of tackling the pandemic is to give the same level of priority to education as we gave three months ago to health and to saving jobs.
0: Yes, and there's a and there's a blueprint for that. So I guess it could be done. Is there anything anybody could do to help you, Jack, in terms of pr- pressurising politicians? Well, the
1: most important thing that everybody in Scotland can do uh, this week is to write to their MSP, write to the local council, and write to John Swinney and Nicola Sturgeon uh, and let them know the strength of feeling on this. Let's not uh, conduct this argument by in the in the mad Twitter sphere of abuse and <laughs> and nonsense that goes on there. Yeah. Let's focus this. Uh, we want to see decisions made this week that start the planning for Plan A to be full-time education and Plan B to be uh, the, the 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 emergency uh, uh, less, lesser option that was being talked about until uh, until earlier this week. And you know, I think there are there are simple things that can be done identifying buildings. My understanding is that nobody has been able yet to find a council in Scotland that has identified any extra buildings that schools can use to bring kids back from home to school. Yeah. They can they can ensure, for example, that all the probationer teachers uh, who've done their probationary year in Scotland and are now fully qualified are retained in August and still back in the schools. Almost all of them have been told that they've been laid off for August. Mm. Let's keep them in the schools. Don't put them onto furlough law or into unemployment benefit. Pay them to work in the schools. Much better, much better investment. And let's make sure that uh, in terms of uh, other people who can help, Uh, I had an offer the other day, for example, from people involved in culture and theatre who said that they at the moment can't work because they're all closed. Many of them are registered with appropriate disclosure certificates and so on to work with children. Get them in the schools to help and take some of the classes and do some other activities. All of this is possible with a bit of imagination, some resources and some leadership. And I am determined to continue this campaign over the coming days try and get the situation sorted
0: well it's a great idea i certainly back it uh, all the way we back it all the way from here at talk radio lord jack mcconnell thank you very much indeed uh, let's join uh, that campaign because lord jack mcconnell is absolutely correct we are uh, able to do this a bit of imagination a little bit of agility a little bit of you know thought a little bit of pre- preparation and looking around and seeing what resources we have and how we can use them better there's definitely going to have to be something done here. I'm convinced more than ever now have you spoken uh, to Lord Jack McConnell, who is uh, by all means one of the great former uh, First Ministers of Scotland. Um, you know, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's been a teacher. He's not one of those politicians who talks uh, without any experience of the real world. He's lived in the real world. He's been in the real world. And now he wants to use that knowledge and fix something which is currently uh, in a bad place education in this country is the most important thing uh, that we can have after our health and as he says we save the NHS let us save education I think it's a very noble cause and uh, let's see what we can do uh, to help him get to where he
1: wants to go
3: ready to pop the question
1: Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, I'm
0: delighted to say that every Wednesday from this moment on, uh, around about this time, uh, we will be talking to Neil Oliver because I spoke to him last week and I thought, what a thoughtful uh, individual, what a great guy to have uh, as part of a regular uh, thing on the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Because what we like to do here uh, is to challenge opinions, to think about things in a different way, and to be very commonsensical about the world. Neil, welcome back. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me back,
0: mate. Thank you very much indeed. Now, we spoke about this a little bit last week, but but I wanted to explore it a little bit more this week because we do seem to now have found ourselves in a place where everything is polarised, you know, even from, you know, whether you should smoke a cigarette or not to whether uh, you should vote for the uh, breaking up of the United Kingdom to whether you should, in fact, uh, be wanting to stay in the European Union or leave it. It's all, it all seems to have, it feels like it's very tribal.
2: Uh, yes, I, I, I mean in the introduction that you that you made about me there, and you and you wondered about uh, you know how long we've been tribal and and, and the history of, of tribal behaviour, it's it's older than our species, mm. without a shadow of a doubt. I mean we, we we diverged from chimpanzees and gorillas five, six, seven million years ago, and we all know through the work of you know Jane Goodall, uh, primatologist in Tanzania that that chimps are, are, are tribal and gorillas are tribal, uh, and and we've in all periods through history of this country uh, there have been this this island has been populated by different tribes and, it, and it's populated by them now I think what's a challenge that has to be addressed is that the the online uh, the internet that uh, remote virtual world has made it uh, easier and, and even more tempting to remain in your tribe yeah. the period of lockdown demonstrates that our our technology our machines have we've made our machines so smart now. Uh, that even when we're locked in our houses, we can still function. We can get all the food we need. We can get all the books we need, all the entertainment we need. We don't need to go outside and, and interact with people. And in those isolating circumstances, uh, your, your attitudes you, you know, can calcify and harden, and you're not being directly challenged by meeting people you don't agree with face-to-face. And, and the reality through all the history of tribes is that tribes need each other even if they don't agree with one another, and even if they have opposing positions, it's the tension between tribes that keeps the the ropes tight and keeps the the big tent up. It's people pulling in different directions that give our society structure. But in the past, we had had no alternative but to meet face-to-face with people and talk. And talk is fundamental to being successful human beings. And it's no use just talking to people that you agree with. And we've now uh, made our machines so smart that, our, that the machinery out there is funneling information to us that it thinks we will agree with. So increasingly people are only hearing what they want to hear in stark contrast to what they might need to know. And a lot of what you need to know you get from people you don't agree with because they have, they have different ideas. And it's the mixing of ideas uh, that, that comes together and makes something successful. And so we'll... We've got. We're all being because the machines are sending us, because the online world is sending us just what we want to hear. We're all beginning to behave like mini, mini divas, you know, mini celebrities. You're mm. surrounded by by online sycophants and toadies that are that only tell us what we want to hear, and that a, a world populated by isolated divas who think that they are 100% right about everything. Mm. There's no way to proceed as a successful
0: society. No, quite. And as I was saying about the word consensus, people seem to now think that consensus is a one-way street. You know, people talk about, you know, well, this has been done by consensus. For example, climate change uh, has by far and away uh, been decided by the consensus of scientists, a lot of scientists. But there are plenty of other scientists who don't go along with all of the so-called consensus. But if you're not on the side of consensus now, apparently you're some kind of devil incarnate, uh, as indeed uh, you found out, after you appeared on the show last week, I was quite surprised. I suppose I should have known uh, if I'd read up enough about the, so the, the sort of spats you've had in the past that the Scottish National contingent uh, weren't too happy with you.
2: Well, I think because of the tribal aspect to, to politics and the, the identity politics, rather than being, um, rather than when we when we encounter people, really or, or virtually, and treating them as individuals uh there's a move to have us all treat one another as members of groups mm. that that you know that we're ascribing to the individual the attributes that we associate with a group which is almost a textbook definition of racism as, as far as it goes
0: yeah.
2: uh, but because we're not we're not meeting with people uh, and talking to them as individuals when, when when the when some people look at me and they hear my accent and i'm obviously, someone from born in scotland and raised in scotland i have a scottish accent uh, and I'm, I'm associated for a lot of people with telling uh, the history of scotland and some people made an ass- assumption that i would have uh, that i would have uh, nationalist politics yeah. and i don't mm. uh, but why would, but why would they do that neil do you think w- well because because we're all hardening into groups uh, and uh, people would ascribe to me what they associate with someone who's interested in Scottish history and someone who has a Scottish accent. And some people mistakenly made the assumption that because of those characteristics, also in the package would be that I would uh, subscribe to Scottish nationalist party politics. And I, I just don't. But, but, in terms of, I mean, I try to be. I'm by nature, amongst many other things, I'm, I'm pessimistic. <laughs> I'm, fairly, I'm a fairly depressive, pessimistic character, but. But I, I know that I have to reach out to optimistic people mm. because they are part of the antidote. They they will teach me things that I need to know, uh, and and although yes, as you point out, I've been you know I've been on the receiving end of a bit of a torrent of uh, of negative uh, material. I've also, through the same period, been reached out to by people who you might say are from other tribes, mm. people who I, I know from from finding out about them that they probably have lots of opinions or at least some opinions that I, I wouldn't agree with. But nonetheless, they are reaching out to me and saying, uh, I find common ground with you on certain things. Right. And that that is the basis for a conversation. And I am more than happy to be disagreed with, challenged, because you know I'm not an expert on anything, but I'm constantly in the process of trying to find out more. I just want to know and mm. understand as I can. And I get that. I get a huge amount of that from reaching out to and having conversations with people uh, with whom I don't agree about certain things. The, the problem is that disagreement has become hatred.
0: Yeah,
2: It has become almost, uh, almost uh, a necessity of the group that if you subscribe to a group, you're supposed to hate, not just disagree with, but actually hate and loathe members of another yeah. group. And that's no basis for dialogue. No, You know, everything that we're ever going to know about about the world is going to come from conversation. And at the moment, we've hardened into these groups, and it's partly the fault of the online virtual world where people aren't actually challenged to go and meet people face to face. But the conversations have, have dried up, and it's become these antagonistic situations where people are staying behind their barricades. We're growing further and further apart, and no man's land is growing between us, and it's no basis for mutual understanding.
0: No, I think that's right. And one of the things that that troubled me about a lot of the, the, the hate that you were getting last week was that it wasn't based on really what you were saying. It was based on the fact that you was that it was you that was saying whatever it was that you were saying. So they're not looking at what your ideas are or what your opinions are. They've just basically made you into this hate figure uh, because you once said something that they didn't like. And that worries me because, as you say, there's there's smaller and smaller numbers of people who are able to say, look at you and go, well, I don't really like Neil Oliver. I don't really like his uh, his approach. I don't really like his TV show. I don't really like his uh, attitude on, on Scottish independence. But actually he's right about this so very few people can now do that
2: yes and that obviously plays into my <laughs> the pessimistic side <laughs> of my and i and i worry about that because if that is if that's the way we're going to go then that is clearly not going to that's not going to benefit anyone you know it, 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 we're so polarized at the moment in ways that are so unhelpful and there's a there's a there's a very strong narrative that's pervading everything which is all about oppression hmm. That everything, that everything in the world and the whole of human history has just been an exercise in the oppression of one group by another. You know that that women have been oppressed by men, that that, that black people have been oppressed by white people, that poor people have been oppressed by rich people, uh, and that is the that is a narrative, uh, and it, it's, it's it's taking away agency from people to see themselves uh, as individuals. In terms of, you know, when you look at something like uh, the development that we go through when we're children, mm. you know, up until the age of about, I don't know, I'm not a, I'm not a child psychologist, but I, th- I think from reading about people like Jean Piaget and others, that at, until the age of about seven, a child doesn't have any ability to make room for other people's opinions. They, they have an understanding of the world. They're not, they're not stupid. They just think differently than adults. But they don't make room for other people's opinions. And then from, from the age of about, maybe, you know, as you get older and from about 12 up, you start to make room for other people's opinions. Mm. So it, it's it's in the development of us as human beings from infancy through to adulthood that we're supposed to go through a point where, I mean, you start out dependent on your parents and then you, you leave your parents behind and you, and you maybe find a tribe, a group, you know, based on people that maybe dress like you or listen to the same music as you or have the same political opinions and you find that group. But you can't. Stop at that point, you, because sometimes tribes go wrong, sometimes groups go bad, and that's not to say that you then have to do away with the group and, and forget it ever happened. Mm. What we what it requires is mature thinking individuals. That's the word. That's the concept. Individuals within the group who are prepared to stand outside of their group. And and work to, to to bring new life and new ideas back into it to get it back onto the right track. Yes, and that's what keeps all groups going. And as long as, as I said earlier, you know, I have been reached out to by people who I know I wouldn't agree. I, I, I might not agree with even fifty percent of their thinking, but that they are they are reaching out and they want to have conversations and they want to have dialogue. So they step out of their group into no man's land. I step out of my group into no man's land. It's like the football game. At mm. when, At Christmas time in in the First World War, the people step into no man's land. They leave their groups behind briefly. They have a conversation and they can go back in and they can put their tribe right because they've learned new information from another tribe. And that, that new information lets you modify the tribe that you're a part of. If you're brave enough, you have to be brave enough to say, I'm not just going to trot out the party line. I'm not just going to say the tribal slogans. I'm gonna go out on my own and say, I want to talk to other people. Mm. And and so, although I've been pessimistic and I've been depressed, I've also been hugely encouraged by the fact that there are people from all sorts of groups that are quite alien to me, and have reached out to me and said, we need to talk about this. And you think, yes. And if I learn crucial things from them and they learn crucial things from me and other people like me, we can go back into our groups and we can make our groups better. And fundamentally, all the groups, all the tribes are necessary. We need each other. But the most exciting and helpful and interesting things in the world happen on the boundaries between the groups, where the groups actually bump up against each other. That's well, that's, where right. the well that's, that's
0: why I find it fascinating that the political kind of spectrum has changed in some ways as well, and whether that has sort of fed into this situation that we have because now it seems to be about identity politics more than ever uh, so that the Labour Party doesn't any longer stand for the working class sort of white men and women of this country. Uh, It doesn't get elected by the working class white men and women of this country any longer. Similarly, the Conservative Party does not really represent what it used to represent, which was a sort of, you know, vaguely right wing, uh, rather laissez-faire, you know, economically kind of... um, very sure party. You know, the the things have all become mixed up. But it's almost like when I was living in America, people would say, you know, if you're a Democrat, uh, then you must be pro-abortion and you must be against the death penalty. And people would go... Well, how can you be pro-abortion and and be against and be and before the death penalty? And some people were, and they'd go, "Well, we don't understand that." And so, same thing here. You know, it seems like if you if you want to leave the European Union, uh, you have another set of uh, uh, things that you also believe in, and you all join in that same tribal behaviour.
2: That's in the, that is in the nature of. Tribes. I mean, we all we all belong to tribes. We we, we do whether we whether we like it about ourselves or admit it about ourselves. You know, we, we tend to group together with people we feel common ground with, mm. and we take reassurance from being surrounded people who seem, by and large, to kind of look like us and have a lot of the same attitudes as us. But that's not enough. No no tribe, be it well, you know, be it conservative, be it Labour, if you want to talk about politics. There's no there's no culture. There's no. There's no creed uh, that, that doesn't need to be challenged from time to time by other people. But what's very pernicious at the moment is, uh, for me, I mean, this is just my honest opinion that I'm prepared to have challenged. But but I believe that that in the West uh, and in and manifest in what we've had in Britain for the last maybe couple of hundred years, and what's also absolutely written into the Constitution of the United States of America. Uh, is the belief in certain uh, inalienable uh, 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 rights that are just immutable, immutable rights and immutable thinking. And if you want to summarise it, it does come down to the sanctity of and respect for the individual. That's where the magic happens. If we remain stubbornly and quite frankly cowardly, behind the barricades erected by our tribes, well, there comes a point where your tribe goes wrong and your tribe needs to be, it's come off the rails and it needs to move position. And that's why it's never, you can't just be, you can't just be, you know, determinedly conservative for the whole of your life. And you can't just be determinedly labor for the whole of your life because from time to time, the the party or the tribe or the clan goes wrong and it takes it takes individuals within the group to have the courage to stand outside of the group and say this isn't good enough. We have to we have to adopt some new thinking. It's it's no there is no long term benefit in just allowing your all of your opinions to harden as though everything your tribe will ever say from now until the end of time will always be right and in the best interests of everyone. But that's the that's why the individual is the most important thing. And at the moment we're, we're trying, or there's a, there seems to be a deliberate attempt to frighten individuals into not having the courage. It's become harder and harder to stand up and come forward mm. as an individual and say, just me myself, I think there might be a better way of doing this. Because you just get shouted down by the, you know, by the, by the combined voices of the, of the tribe. You get shouted down by your own tribe for stepping out of line, and you get shouted down and threatened with death and all sorts of all sorts of hideousness right. by, the, by the by the opposing tribe. Yes. We've got to get back to a point where individuals feel the confidence to stand up and say, "I don't think that my tribe is hundred percent right on this." Right. Well this, is, not...
0: well, this is interesting. I mean, I've got a tweet here uh, that says, Neil Oliver is 100% correct. It's like we are being pushed into an American-style gang culture where they loathe an opposing gang and its area where they have to fight and destroy them in order that they then take over. Because I grew up in a Britain, uh, you know, which was much, much less, shall we say, well upholstered than the one that we live in now. We didn't have an awful lot growing up in the 1970s. You know, we did have the occasional foreign holiday, but it wasn't anything like the ones my kids go on. And, you know, but nobody seemed to be as bothered by what other people thought as we are now. You know, we, it, we we allowed for a kind of fairly wide range of opinions on all sorts of things. Now, you know, if you have a
2: particular opinion, you are demonised. I don't. Uh, this is something I don't understand. And I certainly don't profess to have a solution for it. But it seems incredibly ironic to me that at, at the moment in the West, in a place like Britain, in a place like North America, the potential for a good life has never been so good. You know, more people have been lifted out of uh, poverty since the 1980s. 80% of people have been lifted out of abject poverty since the 1980s. More people have more money. And more children are being educated. We have more solutions for disease. You know, the living has become much, much better, unrecognizably better, just during the course of my lifetime. And yet, as never before, we are at each other's throats about everything. And, and, we're, and people... Uh, are in danger or some people are in, are in danger of thinking that the, that the peace and the prosperity that we've, that we have had is some kind of natural state mm. and that you can get a, and that you can get angry with and burn down everything that we've had and still uh, leave behind the prosperity and the good living. But that's the, not the natural state of, of humankind down through history. We know this. If you pay any kind of attention to history at all on even the most superficial level, you know that in the past life was terrible. Life was unbearable for most people for most of the time. One of the great miracles is that our our own personal ancestors survived the hideous long enough to make the people who made us. And yet now we're living in this time of, of relative prosperity, relative good health, relative opportunity here in the West, in Britain, in North America and other places. And yet we're at each other's throats. As never before. And, and sometimes I wonder, I mean, we talked last week, Mike, about, you know, the pulling down of statues and and, and wanting to undo or rewrite history. And I do wonder if, if partly it's because since the end of the Second World War, the people in the West have lived in, in increasingly peaceful and tolerant societies. Mm. So we're, we're drifting further and further away from the reality of life and the world. The reality of life and the world is war, is suffering, abject suffering, pain, disease, all of that is in the natural order of things, but we've been cocooned for several generations now in a safe and tolerant and liberal world, comparatively speaking. I'm not suggesting for one minute that it's perfect. And most dangerous of all is that at this moment, of all moments, we're also contemplating forgetting history, doing away with aspects of history, as never before we needed to pay attention to history now. Because for want of war, or for some other terrible corrective, we need to look back and be reminded that the past was ugly, and lives were nasty, brutish, and short. Mm. Or or, or we're gonna lose that, or that will slip away from us. These things, this civilization that we have is the most fragile flower that has ever been given life. And it's beautiful, and we are all captivated by it. But if we don't look after it, it's gone like
0: that yeah. absolutely right what a fantastic um series of things that you've said there neil thank you so much again brilliant uh, to have you on we'll see you next week at the same time um i'm absolutely in agreement with you on this because i've been saying for a while uh, basically that the people of this country have got nothing to worry about so they're now getting angry about things that they shouldn't be getting angry about neil has more or less said that in a much more eloquent way i have to say uh, but what a fantastic uh, a series of arguments he made uh, You can't tell me that that isn't some of the greatest radio you've ever heard. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham
2: on Talk Radio.
0: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's been another fascinating show, I must say, uh, and I'm very much looking forward to what we are about to do because it is now time. We've spoken a lot about education and the need to get children back to school. Uh, that was dominating Prime Minister's questions as well. So it's rather apposite uh, that we're now going to talk about uh, learning and we're going to talk about literacy and we're going to talk about poetry, indeed, with Phil Shepard, Senior Project Officer uh, at the National Literacy Trust because he's going to tell us all about rhyming couplets. Phil, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome.
4: Good morning, Mike. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Not at all. Thank you very much indeed. Now, poetry is something that uh, most children are exposed to at some point or other in their in their education, and some take mm. to it more than others. And I've always thought that it depends very much on who is teaching you about it and who is telling you about it, because there's so much richness in our literature that, that, that it's a wonderful thing. And obviously, you know, I use words a lot. I do it for a living. I used to be a journalist uh, in mm-hmm. newspapers. And so, you know, I love words. I love poetry. But rhyming couplets... um, is a kind of device, really, isn't it? It's not something necessarily that you need to use, but something that you can use.
4: It is, yes. I mean, uh, a lot of children really enjoy that kind of poetry. So if you think of, for example, a lot of the picture books that are really popular, a lot of the Julia Donaldson, uh, Mm. Gruffalo and so on, uh, they're using rhyming couplets to tell their story. So. you know, um, teachers and parents love books like that because uh, they have the rhythm, they have the rhyme, and they have the story. Yes. So it ties it all in And, and children really enjoy hearing hearing that uh, the pattern, and it helps them remember it as well.
0: Yes, exactly right. And so tell us, if you can, in, in sort of relatively layman's terms, what is a rhyming couplet? That is, how is it defined?
4: <laughs> well, a rhyming couplet is two lines of poetry mm. uh, with the rhyme at the end, um, and uh, they're a similar length so um they have the same pattern in the first line and the second line and then of course um you you get a bunch of those together and that would form that would form a poem um it can either tell a story like i said or it could be on a particular topic um or more of a, like a list poem or a nonsense poem uh, so there's loads of things you can do with with rhyming couplets
0: yes and is there a point at which you could say that it was the 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 rhyming couplet was sort of invented if you like
4: Uh, Yeah, I think you can trace it back to Chaucer uh, in the 14th century. Um, And then other big names, uh, John Dryden and uh, Alexander Pope were famously used them as well. Uh, All up to the modern day, of course, Roald Dahl uh, used them quite a lot uh, in his books when he he went off into poetry. And then he did, uh, of course, his revolting rhymes and, and dirty beasts, which used them too.
0: Yes, I was a big fan of Ogden Nash when I was a, a, a little boy. I was kind of exposed to that quite early on, and mm-hmm. one of my favourite ones of his uh, was "Should you behold a panther crouch, prepare to say ouch," <laughs> which is not quite as rhyming as it might first appear because there's not as many words in the second line as there are in the first. Does that matter?
4: Mm. Um, I don't, well, poetry, of course, is uh, is quite malleable, so you can you can break the rules as much as you want, uh, but as, you know, as long as it's got that rhyme um at the end of both lines i think uh, you can get away with it yeah
0: right. and if you are writing uh, a poem and you're making one up and we we, mm. we we call this our homeschooling section so a lot of children yeah, listening no. at the moment because their parents are going thank god i don't yeah. have to teach them anything for 15 minutes um <laughs> if they're writing something like this does it have mm. to have does does every second line have to rhyme i suppose or can you go like with with sort of two rhyme two lines that rhyme then two lines that don't and then two at the end that do
4: um, well, I, I'd recommend sticking to a pattern if you're kind of okay. uh, teaching teaching this. I'm a former teacher myself, so uh, if you kind of set up the rules first, um, look at some good examples, um, and then kind of... It, there's a lot you have to think about, really, with rhyming couplets. So you have to um, find the rhymes. So you might want to kind of uh, brainstorm and, and jot down some rhymes first. You might want to write the first line and then and then uh, write down a load of rhymes and then and, and go through the alphabet. So if you're rhyming with, say, hat go through the alphabet, so at, cat, bat, you know, chat, write those down, then try and fit them in. And then and then, you, you, uh, it's good to think about the rhythm of the poem as well. And the good thing about uh, writing this kind of poetry is that you don't have to write a lot, but you, it really gets you thinking. Mm. So, um, yeah, so you're kind of editing bits out. Oh, that doesn't quite work. Maybe we can get this word in here, take that word out. Yeah. Um, and it's, it really lends itself uh, to reading aloud, to performing... Um, so it's a lot of fun and yes that's, performing it then helps you write it more and hone it down so right. uh, there's loads you can do
0: yeah I'm a big fan of sort of doing stuff on the hoof as well I mean I'm not going to yeah. tell people how to teach children but I mean if you had yeah, yeah, a yeah. class of kids and you just have them each come up with a line right so that you just yeah, make up yeah. a poem with with all of them you know sort of giving a line to it
4: absolutely I've done that before so uh, so like I said earlier um there are a lot of these poems are stories but you can also have kind of list poems that don't have to go in any particular order. Um, For example, I've got one here by James Hurley about a dog, a greedy dog, and it goes apple cores and bacon fat, milk you poured out for your cat, he likes the string that ties the roast and relishes hot butter toast. Mm. So there you've got, you know, loads of kind of random things in there, and, and, and it's it's good to start with uh, a poem there where he, it doesn't really matter what words you get in there yeah. um, as long as it's, uh, you know, so it's like a list poem.
0: And I'm looking at a bit of the Gruffalo, and, and, and you're right to say that she is sort of the master or the mistress of this particular format. Mm. But she, but the piece that I'm looking at, it's not actually written as a poem. It's almost written as prose, you know, um, yeah. but it still rhymes. So a mouse took a stroll through the deep, dark wood. A fox saw the mouse and the mouse looked good you know it's brilliant and to me i just yeah. think that's fantastic but it's not written as as a poetic sort of setup
4: yeah i mean it works as a story in yeah. itself um and then um it's really good to, to sit with children and kind of find the rhymes and then uh, highlight them. And then they can see for themselves where the rhymes are. Yes. So if you use an example, uh, like the Gruffalo, uh, a mouse took a stroll through the deep, dark wood, and then, oh, wood, and good. They rhyme, and you yeah. kind of colour them in if, you, if you've got a printout. And, and then the children discover themselves, oh, the rhymes are at the end of the line. Mm um and then they kind of they remember that a bit more you see
0: right okay mm. and and are you happy i mean i don't know if this is too political a question for you are you happy with how poetry is taught in schools in this country at the moment
4: um well it's, it's in the national curriculum um to to kind of learn poems uh by rote off by heart um which i think is really important and i think uh that could probably be done a bit more um and it's it's you know it's really fun and and um it gets the vocabulary and so on uh, really ingrained in the children's minds so they can use that as they move
0: forward and what about does it kind of lead to further i mean is it like a gateway to to, to more kind of heavy poetry if you like you know there's the sort of Tennyson's of this world
4: yeah i think so i mean uh, any any poetry uh, you know and and reading it leads one leads from to another you know so it's kind of touchstones of So uh, like this, but let's try this one. Um, For example, I mean, we've talked a lot about kind of funny poetry for rhyming couplets, but there's also other examples. I've got one here, uh, The Visitor by Ian Sorelia, which is uh, more of a spooky poem. I Mm. used to love using this one with with older children in primary school. So this is about um, a man who finds a ring on the skeleton's finger. And Mm. uh, it goes, he saw a skeleton on the ground, a ring on a bony hand he found. He ran home to his wife and gave her the ring Oh, where did you get it? He said, not a thing. It's the prettiest ring in the world, he said. As it glowed on the finger, they skipped off to bed. At midnight, they woke in the dark outside. Give me my ring, a chill voice cried. So, you know, so it can That's be used. I've not heard uh, yeah. that.
0: That's really good. That's oh, quite it's spooky. a really good
4: poem. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it goes on. I've, I've left you in suspense of it there. But it goes on uh, and, and, and then children can see. Oh, so we can have funny poems. We yeah. Can have spooky poems um, and then move on from there
0: great stuff. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, thank you very much indeed for, for teaching us all that. Phil Shepard, Senior Project Officer at the National Literary Trust. Now, Literacy Trust, I should say, there's no reason why you can't make up your own poem. And I think if you've got your children there, why don't you do it? Just make one up, you know, just start off with one line, give the next line to the next person to your left, and then go from there and see how far you get. I think it's great fun. I love word games, as you can probably tell. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On
2: DAB. And on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham.
3: On Talk Radio.